episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. Episode 28. This week I sat down with Brennan from Car Builders. So Car Builders are uh, a brand doing sound deadening and, uh, and heat shields for cars. They're an Aussie company, so really good to have a chat to him. Uh, definitely something that's a the top of my list at the moment for my build so if you're building something or you've got a vehicle that gets hot or noisy uh, this could be a really good listen for you lots of good information in there also I wanted to just uh, touch base and uh, thank everyone for listening we've been getting rated in the top 10 uh, downloaded shows on the on the Aussie automotive podcast list so we've been up and down from uh, from number one and, and hanging around the top 10 which is really cool and I just wanted to uh, to ask you if you haven't had a chance yet, um, if you haven't subscribed, uh, especially on iTunes um, or, or done a rating. So just take a take a minute, scroll down to the bottom of the iTunes page there on the podcast app and, and just give us a rating. That'd be really good. Helps us to stand out a bit more uh, when people are looking for podcasts. I want to do a bit of a shout out to, uh, to the other Aussie Automotive podcasts that I enjoy listening to. There's quite a few out there. So really good one. Um, that's great is Rusty's Garage uh, by Greg Rusty, the automotive commentator that you probably all know. Uh, Greg's really lucky he's got contact with uh, all the big names in automotive racing and, uh, and quite a few other big names. He's just recently done one with Eric Banner, which was a great listen. So jump on board and, and have a listen to Rusty's Garage. Another great one is the Gutter to Gutter podcast. A couple of guys up in Sydney doing a, a really good job chatting about cars up there. Uh, there's another fantastic one called the Pod Filter. So have a listen to that one and Car Talk Podcast. So these guys have been going for quite a while and do a really good job. Also uh, a podcast called The Thong Slappers. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still going, but definitely a lot of good content if you go back to the start. There's quite a few international ones that I enjoy that I'll just share if you haven't had a listen. A couple that aren't really truck related. One's called Let's Talk Dubs and it's a uh, Volkswagen-based podcast. So... So if you have any interest in Volkswagens uh, on the side, it's a it's an interesting, probably slightly biased uh, Las Vegas uh, Volkswagen podcast. Sort of not a lot of international stuff going on in that podcast, but really good information. Another one that I've really been enjoying is called the New Legend podcast. So it's it's based around a, a business in America that uh, does high end international scout restorations, so four wheel drive stuff. But it, uh, it's just really interesting, a lot of overlanding, um, camping, four-wheel driving stuff. So if you enjoy getting out camping, there's, there's a bit to be learned out of that podcast, and it's a good listen. Uh, a great one that just popped up on my radar, I've just started listening to. I think it's only about a five- or six-part series. It's called Bring Back Bronco. So if you're a Ford guy especially, I suppose, um, obviously Ford have just brought back the Bronco this year. And it's just a history on what happened to Bronco when, when Broncos first came out and uh, a bit of a rise and then they had their iconic fall when uh, OJ Simpson took them on a very slow run up the highway. We'll all remember watching that on the news. And uh, yeah, interesting story if you're a Ford guy um, or if you're just generally an automotive. And then there's uh, the C10 Talk, which we've spoken to in the past, Ronnie. Um, that's a C10 Chevy truck podcast. So if you're into um, Chevs and especially C10s, uh, Lots of good content there. Ronnie's been running that one for years and does a great job. He also has a fairly recent one, an offshoot. It's called OBS Talk. So if you're in that 88 and newer uh, Chevy pickups, then that's the podcast for you. And they also have one now called F100 Talk. So if you're a Ford guy, uh, jump on there and have a listen. There's some good content. Anyway, that's enough rattling on. Uh, This was a great podcast. I really enjoyed chatting to Brandon. Uh, Very knowledgeable. He comes out of the mini truck scene. So... 
has been around trucks for quite a while and he's got quite a nice uh, GMC uh, C10. I know it's not probably called a C10, but that's what it is, square body um, truck. So enjoy the podcast and, yeah, take a minute, give us a rate and a review. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Brendan, thanks for coming on board and having a chat to us on the podcast. How are you today, mate? Good, thanks, mate. Yourself? No, very well, very well. It's um, it's a sunny day up here, so I'm happy that we had one one week of winter this year, and I think it's gone. Yeah, well, it seems a longer winter for myself. Um, being stuck that we can't travel anywhere, you, you're stuck in the cold, you can't go anywhere, you can't shoot off on a plane overseas to get that break. So, um, yeah, we're experiencing the bite of Melbourne at the moment. Yeah, yeah, not ideal. So, mate, before we get stuck into uh, car builders and all that that's become, mate, why don't we wind the clock back and um, what what were your early influences? What, what do you remember as a young bloke that sort of sparked your interest in, in automotive or in cars to start with? Yeah, well, me, myself, my dad was always in the car industry. So I grew up, um, he had his own car yard. Um, or going back early, back in the late 70s, early 80s, he used to work for fuel the Ford dealers around Melbourne. And, um, you know, I've got childhood memories of him bringing home a, a brand new different car every night, latest Ford. Um, Mum would always have the latest Ford off the yard, that sort of thing. He eventually then went out on his own and sold secondhand vehicles. So, you know, any Saturday I had or school holidays, I'd go to work with Dad. Uh, the excitement of him coming home in, you know, all sorts of different cars. Probably one of the earliest ones or two, I think I was probably around the age of four or five. And at that stage, he had a XE ESP, um, which was, we call it the beast. It was actually the last black, full black with gold wheels off the production line. Um, was a 351, was they were a pretty cool spec car those. Uh, but I've got the memories of that pulling up in the driveway and always asking dad, bring that home, bring that home. It was that, and he also had a champagne sort of green LTD, which I'm not sure Z something, because equivalent to an XD, but an LTD of that era, which was, you know, as a kid in the long wheelbase, you sit in the back and the, the folds in your knees wouldn't even be able to go forward over that rear seat that they'd stick out straight. They had um, joggle electric seats in the front. It's a pretty cool car as a kid mm. to go in. And then, um, you know, Dad had a string of rotaries rx7s so i've always got a soft spot for those cars because they were small i could actually fit in the back seat back then which was crazy um but he always a string of cars he was a bit of a ford man i'm not so much a ford man i did work for general motors for 15 years it doesn't make me a holden man um <laughs> but if we touch on the pickups probably the way i got into the pickup trucks was sort of through the bmx scene where um you know, the higher end sort of riders. And there was one particular guy, Trevor King, that had a, a Hilux and it was a 79 Hilux that he'd done the whole mini truck thing on. And, you know, as a young kid, influenced riding around, fashion, BMX, all that sort of thing. He had this mini truck and we were like, straight away you thought it was a Chev and you're like, what's this Chev? And then you learned that it was a Hilux. So inevitably the first car I ended up getting was a, an 84 Hilux two-wheel drive that ended up body dropped and bagged and all that sort of thing. But, you know, that's how I got an obsession for those vehicles. Yeah, it's amazing how those early influences really come in on and, and go for you. I guess, you know, being a BMX person, you know, you, you obviously, once you get old enough to get your car license, you're not riding everywhere on the little single cog. So you get the ute <laughs> to put it in the back and, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it was the, the logic thing was to, to get a ute because you could fit your bike in the back. So it was one track mind in that sense. Something I sort of had noticed too, a lot of these BMX guys um, got into cars. And I think the way I've sort of put it together was, you know, back then when you didn't have your license, your freedom or transport was your bike, whatever shape or form it was. Mountain bikes hadn't had such a rage um, in the younger days for me and BMX, was that mechanical sort of element that was fashionable. So, you know, we'd break things on our bikes and we'd make parts for our bikes that you couldn't get. And you learned about the basic mechanics. And then once you got into a car, you, you sort of carried that over and you wanted to make your car fashionable. And there was more mechanical things that it being metal, you'd cut and weld and learn about that stuff that you'd just take it that next step. Yeah, so here's a question for you. Did you ever try and put a tuff in the freezer? Do you remember that story that you could 
Yeah, I do remember that. And um, it was hard to find a freezer big enough. But um, yeah. knowing a bit about plastics now, you, I know it's an urban myth. I still hear grown guys say that, no, no, you can do this. And you're kind of like, no, nah, man. And, and as those tufts did look cool. And we all go back to BMX bandits. And you think, you know, how cool were those bikes? How did they look? But geez, they were heavy shit plastic wheels. Your brake pads never worked, that sort of thing. Yeah, they're, they're quite iconic. Um, I think guys our age, you know, like you say, watching... Um, Nicole Kidman go down the water slide and, and all that sort of shit. It was uh, it was pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it was. And even to see, I mean, there's this um, just this craze of guys collecting old BMXs now. And some of the stuff I see on some of these forums on Facebook, because you still, you know, you'll see a bike and go, oh, I remember a mate had that. And I've got to actually, I've got a mate that works for Haro. He lives in California now, and he's what is he, the marketing manager out there, guy John. Um, which a lot of bikes, if are in the BMX scene, they'd know him. Um, but he's relived or, or rebirthed 30 years later a lot of these bikes. I've actually got one in the background here. Um, but then I see these guys selling, you know, trying to trade just a Chrome BMX. It might have been like a Mongoose villain, which was pretty much just like an executive Commodore, nothing special where, you know, it's, it's not as if it was the SS. And these guys are frothing over these, what, what we were seeing as cheap shitbox bikes. <laughs> They're not even the top end one, so you're sort of going, oh wow! But it's amazing. This they have swap meets and shows, and you know, it's their thing. They get involved in. Yeah, it's a big thing. I my first one was a Redline, and it, it, I saved up for ages to buy it, and it was the coolest thing ever. But I was always a skateboarder, really, so it didn't last long for me to be a Max Fad. But uh, yeah, it's uh, I got a mate in Melbourne who restores um, split screen combis, and, and he's right into them, and he's got he's got all these old bikes, and they're all restored to probably better than the factory when they came out they're just amazing so it's cool yeah it's an easy collection and it's compact like what you've got sitting behind you a couple of cabs they, as soon as you start blowing cars apart they take up a bit of room which is a problem yeah definitely probably in my workshop <laughs> at the moment uh, so so what was you know when you when you first dished out your own dollars what what was the first car you bought first car i got was an 84 hilux extra cab two-wheel drive so it's the iconic Back to the Future, um, you know, the one Marty McFly has. His is obviously the full drive version, but it, it was that. That's all I could afford, you know, when it was a whopping four and a half thousand dollars with just a shitbox three Y, which is a gutless two liter motor. Um, but being modular, you could get full drive fared Flinders and bolt them on straight away. And the funny thing was, uh, a lot of people didn't recognise these things when you lowered them. And they didn't realise what they were, Hiluxes. And they, they'd, especially with the four-wheel-drive guards, you just buy a four-wheel-drive fender and bolt it on or get a four-wheel-drive tub and instantly you've got a fared flender. And, and you get these guys that had all this, what I'd icon sort of bogans from the 70s. You know, they grew up with um, Guns and Roses and all that sort of thing and tight jeans. And they'd be into the typical Australian cars. And since they couldn't relate to it, they go, oh, who did the flares on your fenders, mate? You know, they'd think you'd gone and... Um, and maybe it's derivative of that SLR 5000 days where you had fiberglass fenders. They'd assumed you'd gone out and done all this work to it when really you'd gone and bought non-genuine parts because that's all you could afford and bolted them on and you had this instant flare that you'd typically just prime the guards and leave them because you couldn't afford paint. So um, for us, it was all about just getting this thing as low as we can. It was the start of sort of airbags back then in the 90s when I had a truck Nobody had airbags and, you know, you'd wind your torsion bars down and then notch the rails and then we worked up to airbags. And we were going to like um, Norga and Air Valve Company and buying valves, going in, speaking to these industrial guys and they had, they were just like, what are these kids doing? We'd go through the catalogue and go, oh, we need this, this a 3.8. Oh, look, there's a half inch one. And, you know, they'd be asking all these technical questions on, you know, what sort of airflow rating you need. And we lost like... We don't know, man. We just want like the half inch ones because we know they're fast and they need to be 12 volt. So we ended up buying like, you know, hobbling these things together and building our own air suspension kits. Um, and then I, I do remember it probably would have been about, I don't know, early 2000s. Uh, me and a mate had body dropped a couple of Rodeos and Hiluxes um, to the point where, you know, we had this Rodeo, which was like a 90 model single cab. And we channeled this thing three inches 
like stock floor body drop, which sort of wasn't heard of back then, where you'd cut the vertical height of the rails down, lower the cab mounts, do all this wacky stuff to try and retain, you know, your vertical height, particularly in the cabin space under the dash, so you could still get your feet in under there. Um, and I think we channeled this thing three inches. We only lost about an inch out of the interior space. So we cheated it all through the rails and everything. And this thing was fully engineered, cut the rockers back a bit and then welded a bit of, I think it was six mil, got a bit of hundred by hundred, six mil steel cut it in half. So it was a U section, open up the rockers and put it inside the rockers. So when the cab blade dragged on the ground, you're dragging this bit of six mil steel, um, so that was a fairly standout truck because it was low and you drive it at 100 mil and it was look, still looked offensively low. And I remember taking it down. And we took it to a few meets. You go to these old school sort of hot rodder meets, you know, whether it was like um, John's Rod and Custom um, picnic at Pakenham or the showdown at Phillip Island. And all these hot rodders would be just shaking their heads going, what the fuck, what have you done? You know, because they hadn't cottoned on to how to do it. They were still making these old four-link systems with, uh, you know, coilover springs and we had these cantilever airbag setups where we would be getting like 14 inches of lift in the back just to get our wheels out of the guard so you could swap them over. <laughs> yeah. So it was good to see the scene evolve back then into what it is today and the control systems and everything you can get just for the cars is just phenomenal. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, the modern truck scene that we see here, you know, it's got mini trucking to thank for a lot of its roots. Yeah, it's interesting to see too. And there's there's a bit of that coming back. Like I think we had a conversation earlier on those trucks from the '90s. You know, typical sports truck sort of stuff with a lot of pastel colours. Um, when you sort of look at these subcultures, and there's been a few documentaries on it too, where you go, they talk about low riders and how the Hispanics weren't included in the hot rodding scene, so they come up with their own, you know, subculture which was fit and hydros, and they got a unique style with that. I think the mini truckers were, you know, these young punk kids that wanted to modify stuff and they got the affordable cars of their time which you know happened to be the Japanese pickups for, for those blokes particularly in the states and they just cut them up and because they were full chassis cars you could you know really cut them up and not worry about this unibody sort of stuff where you know there's more limitations um, so you could quite easily cut and shorten or lengthen or change cabs and create something vastly different to the point where guys were doing wagons of like your forerunner surf or whatever it is, a blazer, what you know, whatever manufacturer they've all got them. You could basically take a wagon and, and create something ridiculously low. Yeah, it's uh it's just the you know, we we're talking about it last week, we were chatting to um to Ryan Carter and, and you know, just the fact that you could just about take any car and you just put the right set of wheels on it and slam it on the ground and it, it can almost look good. You know, it's it's an instant change of stance and change of wheels and, and it really improves the look of a vehicle, you know, yeah. I love it. And it's definitely um, something like in the, in the design industry, I, I studied automotive design and then later worked for, you know, Toyota, Ford and GM. And one of the things you're taught as a stylist is you always cheat the roof and you cheat the ride height and you make the wheels, you know, you give the wheels a bit of poke or fill out the guards. Um, and typically that's what you see with a show car. It's like probably a good analogy that everyone will sort of relate to is it, it, it's like Pamela Anderson, really. You know, she's pumped up, makeup. She's not, that's not how they're born. <laughs> they put it on and stage it. And we do the same things with a concept car where, you, you know, you bigger wheels on it, you lower it, you cheat it in every which way you can, tighten up the gaps, artificially correct the surfaces so the paint looks better than it is. It's all, it's all relative to creating that you know, that Coca-Cola look of something that looks sexy. So there are fundamentals with a car. And Ryan's spot on there with any car. I mean, you can get the ugliest car that, you know, you can think of and you can you can lower it or tweak it or get the wheels to sit right in the guard or cheat something on it to make it look, you know, come to life. And then you start to look at the raw elements of, say, the styling of it and, you know, you can really appreciate those details. I think he did mention that there was one exception, that was the EA Falcon, that there's nothing you can do for it. <laughs> EA, AU, you mean, yeah. The AU. Yeah, AU, was it? AU Falcon, yeah. yeah. And I did work with a designer. Um, I know a few of the guys from Ford. And I, one of my designers from, or lecturers, sorry, from university, the guy Pete Jones, um, he worked with, who was it back then? Uh, there was a, like a contracting house, Hillard, I think it was Hillard, design they did caravans and that sort of thing they were in Knoxfield 
and they did a two-door version of an AU. You know, it was that time when the Monaro um, in the late yeah. late 90s come back, so Ford were trailing then, and they outsourced and did this one there. And I remember Pete showing us sketches of it, and he's like, what, what are you, you know, this saggy ass end that's this upside-down thing? And he's trying to straighten out the back end and put this straight spoiler on it to try and fix up the mess was that was what was there. Um, the funny thing, though, I suppose, and, you know, with these big, particularly US-based companies, is they've got this bastardized portfolio of cars that they're sourcing globally. You know, some might be out of Korea, some might be out of the UK or Germany, and they're bringing them into Australia, into our Euro-Western culture. And they've got to try and fit them in a portfolio. So you get this mongrel, you know, breed of cars. And the AU, at the time, the Yanks were had the Taurus. You know, we think the AU was bad. You have a look at the Taurus. <laughs> yeah. And that looks like a melted clay model. So it's interesting to see, you know, some of the stuff does these designers get crucified for on going, oh, how could they make such a, an ugly car? They've got these bigger corporate companies leading them, trying to dictate, no, nah, this is what your market wants. It's got to look like ours. And you're like, yeah, but yours looks like shit, to be honest. <laughs> So uh, some wacky things go on, um, but yeah. the aftermarket world is where we get to refine them all. Yeah, and that's it. And, and that's where it's interesting. You know, you look at the modern, the modern thing now where they're, they're trying to bring, bring their vehicle out themselves with what they think that we would all do to it. You know, like a Raptor is a perfect example. You know, here's, here's your Ford Ranger. Um, Put it out on the market, and and then let's put out this high spec Raptor, which has got everything we think that the customers would do to it. You know, trying to jump the gun to some degree, and it's always interesting to see how they plan to do things and and whether it actually would be the same as what what the market would do anyway. You know. Yeah, and the Raptor's a good one to watch too. I mean, um, you know, I grew up with RC trucks, and your RC truck always looked like a Baja truck, so that look of sort of desert racing, you know, for me as a young bloke, I go, oh, now as an influenced young bloke, I look at it and go, sick, that's what I want. But it's interesting to see these older sort of blokes that, you know, there's an Australian culture there for our um, 4 by 4 market where they put this big ugly bar on it and um, they want a certain look that's different to the American look. You know, the younger blokes will take to the poke and they want the big wide stance and, you know, something that looks like it's ready to go and jump dunes where the, the old Australian bloke, he wants his slow and steady rock call and go get into bog holes and all that sort of stuff. So the, it's interesting to observe how successful or how Ford goes with the, the Raptor in the current market. Um, culture differences we can see, obviously, is we don't have car parks for them. Uh, you try and fit standards, you know, suburban garage these days is a, is a double car garage Half it's usually full of shit. You can only get one car in there anyway. But they're usually only six metres long. So I'm currently driving a Colorado uh, dual cab myself, which is a practical car. But in a six-by-six six garage, you've pretty much got to touch a tow bar on the rear wall to close the front of it. So I think I've thought, oh, yeah, Raptor would be cool, but you need the land to park it. <laughs> yeah, and you look at the Dodge Rams and the Silverados that are flowing into the country now, like, yeah, you struggle to even park them down the street without them hanging out too far, you know. Yeah. So I mean, if you, I mean, they appeal to the tradies too because of the obviously the towing capacity, but you need somewhere to park them. So unless you've got a decent driveway, somewhere to park it, or you and somewhere to park it at work, and you're not used to pick up the groceries, it's kind of like, yeah, what do I use it for? I don't think you know everyone with local manufacturing finished, and you know, Commodore was interesting to see how big that culture was for say the Commodore and Falcon market here where you know your young blokes that's what they get sedan wagon or ute wheels do all that thing to them those cars are going to dry up what do they start getting there's euro stuff that's v8 but it's not really affordable so you get a lot of them into these into the 4x4 scene the two-wheel drive scenes you know I reckon pretty dead and if it is it's classic truck which is definitely alive but they go to the four-wheel drive market and what are they buying? I suppose Rangers is, is the hot thing that your flat-brimmed young bloke's going to wear and feel like he's a hero. Um, yeah. But it's a huge aftermarket for them. So it's good to see still, you know, such popular demand for those, for a pickup-style car because there's a huge aftermarket for them and just a huge amount of things you can do 
Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, the days of a tradie going out and buying a, a ute, like a one-tonner or something like that, they're, they're pretty much gone because you, you go and get this dual cab four-wheel drive, you know, you can take the missus and the kids camping on the weekend and then you can tow your tool trailer to work and have the roof racks on the top and, you know, it makes perfect sense. And, and when you look at it, in some ways, you wonder how the ute survived so long in its two-wheel drive, unibody style kind of setup. Yeah, it's kind of... I've always looked at sedans too, and I think I've had one sedan. When we first had our first kid, I bought a sedan, and I thought, what a useless vehicle. Like, you can't even put a pram in the back. Like, you're better off getting a wagon. And then it's always come back to, you know, buying a ute of some sort or a pickup because you go, they're just so practical. I thought, even I've recently, I've gone, oh, I should get a van. It's more practical. But I'm like, I can't bring myself to drive a van. <laughs> <laughs> just can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. So so the Hilux was the first truck. Um what what have you had since then? Oh, I've had a few Hiluxes over the years. Um I think I've had that eighty four to eighty eight shape and then I've had the what was it, eighty ninety to ninety seven shape and then I had the ninety seven to two thousand one shape. So I had a few of those, all different variants of mini they were all mini trucks. One was shortened, one was a couple of them body dropped. Then I took, I, I took some time out actually and I didn't have a truck for a few years because I had a lease car when I worked at GM. It was just too good to go past when you basically just rented a car. If you rode it off, it was 200 bucks. You give it back, turn them over in four to six months um, and you just typically get the cheapest one there. So whether it was an Astro or a Cruze, that sort of shit box. They were new cars. They were nice. You drove to and from work, and then you always had a project at home. So um, <clears throat> I've always had a project. At the moment, I've got a what is it? It's an eighty-seven C ten. So it's the last of that square body, which they actually call an R ten. So what they did is took, and we did the same thing here. Interestingly, when we went from VZ to VE, they took the running gear, like the new running gear, which was the first of those injected three fifties whereas like carburetted injected, they proved out the drive line in that last run out of the square body. And then when they jumped to that OBS shape, then, you know, the body update changed. So smart thing from the manufacturer that they get to prove out the driving gear. If there's any, you know, faults or bugs in it, they've got 12 months pretty much to iron them out before they hit the market with the perceived whole new car that they're going to have less problems and, you know, can lessen the, you know, any detrimental effect on people labeling it as a lemon so yeah i've got the square which is actually a gmc so nice original paint on it uh worn through patinaed it's just lowered a bit at the moment but nice original interior i think we'll probably end up putting it on the ground it's just a matter of getting time i've got a couple of other projects in front of me that i've got to get through <laughs> uh, not big projects but the, the funny thing these days is because i've done it all on other ones, it's all planned out in my head. It's just a matter of executing it. And I don't want it to be one of those projects where you pull it apart and then life gets in the way and three years down the track, you're like, you hate that thing and your memories of that vehicle are it being apart. I've had plenty of those. So what I want to try and do with this one is hit it pretty quick and plan it all out, build as much as we can and then take thing off the road and you know put it, put it together as such but it won't be over the top i think we'll just leave it as original exterior as we can and just make it low and will you swap that 350 out for an ls or will you just leave it be no i think we just leave it be the cool thing about this truck is it's still aircon power steering everything works so it's like there's no point i don't see a point in trying to make this thing fast i mean it makes the right note as it is and it it, it goes hard enough for how it handles as fast as it can handle <laughs> so the motor's good enough. I think we just leave it and just try and I think there's keep it original, but just make it low. And it, at least it's got a theme. I still want to build um, a more serious project is like a 67 to 69 C10. That'll definitely, I think we'll just go LS with that. It's one of those things. Those trucks are fairly well, you know, you buy them now and you, you know, you're going to sandblast the cab. So it's like, do you just buy a cab and doors and then build the rest up? It's working out the plan for that too. Our, it seems our engineering regulations in each state are um, constantly eroding. So it's trying to build it, you know, and keep it short term where you don't get snookered. Yeah, that's a danger at the moment. You want to 
lock in a design and get it done as quick as you can. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, they're getting pretty pricey too. That that era of C10, like they seem to be the most popular at the moment for some reason. Yeah, they are. It seems like that the gen before that too. Um, what from the sixty ones were they sixty one to sixty seven? <clears throat> that shape's still quite popular. I think it, anything you know, the older the the rarer it becomes, the more demand it has, or it drives up the price. I suppose a good thing there's some reputable companies making replaceable bits for them. Um, it, it just means if you're chasing that full original patinaed nice original look it is going to be harder to get um, but if you're prepared to go you know back to metal and pretty much start again which i think the amount of cutting <clears throat> we're going to do to as soon as you start body dropping them you cut everything out anyway so you might as well just start again you buy that nice truck and you cut it up so much that you go oh, i should have just bought one cheaper and just <laughs> hacked at it i made everything else for it yeah yeah well there's even companies out there now that are making brand new cabs, doors, the whole, like you can buy a whole new body for a truck that it's been pressed brand new. Like yeah. they're, they're doing that now, yeah. So yeah, it, yeah, it depends on the finish you're after. You know, if you, if you know you're gonna paint it, it's gotta be perfect, then starting off with something like that, you know, it's gonna cost you more money, but you don't have to body work it. So maybe, maybe it's not costing you more money. Like it's always a bit of a, a toss up depending on what your plan is. Yeah, and I had a, um, <clears throat> I've got a mate, which you probably would have seen his truck, Scotty from Oxytech. So Ryan yeah. did a fair bit of work on his truck and he was like, man, I probably should have just bought a cab. <laughs> the amount of rust mine had in it, I probably should have just bought one because it's it, different, I suppose, if you're in the shed at home and you want to do the labour. But if you're pulling dollars out of your pocket to pay, you know, somebody hourly, that invoice that you might pay someone for 40 hours a week that's going to run up pretty quick that you're going to start chewing thousands of dollars on just to get to a something that you can put paint on so it, yeah it is one of those balances where you go yeah but how much be realistic with what you're going to spend um it's interesting there's a truck out there at the moment that's um a local truck 56 57 i think it is chev you may have seen um it'd been put into a tree only like a week ago it's currently at pickles going to auction oh blue one yeah yeah i'm interested to see what that goes for because you look at it and you go oh it's been it's it's been hit reasonably hard like the doors oh i'm assuming the doors have hit the back of the cab um you know that you go and there's doors there's guards this whole front end what else has happened to it drive line wise the engine's been hit the exhaust everything and I think I, rumor has it on the on Facebook. You know, it's got a reserve of thirty grand on it. You go, okay, well, if, even if you pick it up for thirty, it's it's still going to cost you to get it back up to what it's going to be, and then it's going to be at least at market value. You're not going to make anything out of it. Is it worth it? You're like, nah, maybe you just buy something old. It's a hard one. Yeah, looking at, I have I've seen pictures of that, and that's a serious impact. I don't. I mean, you got bent chassis rails. You got all sorts of problems with that truck. Mm. Yeah. So it's an unfortunate story. I don't know if anyone's followed it, but it was um, that couple. I think they're from. I don't know them, but I, I pieced it together and know a few people that know them. Um, it was a lady's truck. She aquaplaned in the wet. It was poor weather a couple of Sundays ago, and shot off the road into a tree. And um, she's in hospital with injuries, that sort of thing. And the truck's obviously gone through insurance and they've just sent it to the wreckers. And what it is, but then you get people on Facebook, oh, this is what happened when your kid takes your car out. You know, it's just an unfortunate event. Something's happened, someone's come unstuck and it's it can happen. You've got to be careful. So hopefully someone brings that thing back to life. Yeah, and they don't, they don't have ABS. No, they don't have a, ABS. <laughs> <laughs> It's like that's when you see, uh, you know, people trying to put chase stupid horsepower figures in them. It's kind of like, well, is it going to steer and stop and handle to, you know, actually use all that benefit and that power? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget watching, um, yeah, so watching that Eric Banner movie, The Beast, and he's, I think he's sitting in front of Jeremy Clarkson and they're talking about, you know, he's wrecked the car and he's talking about, you know, should I fix it or why do I want to fix it, you know, and, and Clarkson sort of sits there and goes, let me see if I've got this right. You've got 700 horsepower and you've got drum brakes. 
and <laughs> manual steering. And he's like, yeah, and he's like, fuck that. I wouldn't get in that thing, you know, like, and it is classic, you know, like you look at in a, not just Aussie muscle cars, but any early Aussie, any early muscle car now. And you think about once we now go and put all this extra power into that, that we can, and if people aren't upgrading all the other bits, they're, they're pretty scary vehicles. Yeah, exactly. And if you've got something that, um, you know, you can see, there's this, I suppose, the pro touring sort of scene, which is, you know, sort of through everything. You see it in the in the pickup scene where guys, they will go to a lot of effort to try and make these things handle and effectively just have an old body on them. I mean, that's sort of what you've got to do if you want to, if you want to use that power. Um, but you can get simulated power. I don't know. Everyone's different in these, these subcultures. And it's an interesting to see and think about as over the last, you know, I don't know, 50 years of all the different subcultures that have happened. And just this, then you get this whole mongrelization of crossing over into all sort of different things where, you know, you've got pro street, you've got your low rider, then you've got um, your rotters and then your JDM guys and all those different elements sort of combined into, you know, different vehicles. And, and we do see some fascinating stuff out there because of it. Everyone's trying to be different. The thing is, and you see, I see a few of these old trucks for sale, which old trucks that have, you know, might have been glory in the 90s or 2000s. And you look at them and you, you look at the products they had in them and you go, oh, that car looks so, you know, 15 years old because of the product that was the latest product that someone could buy from Summit or whoever was flogging it at the time. For me, I like to see, I appreciate the, you know, trying to retain some of that original design stuff where it's not overdone. Like I see it at the moment with, interior trimming where everything's diamond stitched and we're going to look back in you know five years and go oh that was so five years ago yeah you know as opposed to taking what you know they were doing in the 60s or 70s and replicating that yeah yeah you're right about the diamond stitching i think every time i see a photo of someone's interior it's yeah it's they had the bucket redone and all the door panels and it's it all is the same so yeah, yeah i was going to mention um the other thing category in there is that is the autocross side of things and we i was over in um arizona last november and we went to the good guys at scottsdale and they have a full autocross set set up and they have all these cars going through and that to me that was the the most enjoyable part of the whole show but we sat and watched you know through the heats and into the finals and you know, they're all camaros and um trans ams and all sorts of things running around there but the top 10 shootout there was a a scout 80 made it in there you know and so he'd he just done a full autocross suspension like i'm sure i'm sure the only thing scout was the body and the doors but this thing just railed and it was so fast and in the end out of all the technology and everything that was there it was a um it was a genuine uh ac cobra that won a million dollar car wow and this guy was drifting this thing like inches away from concrete barriers and just like nailing the course. He was amazing. But yes, a, a guy who has this priceless car that most people wouldn't even take out on a rainy day and he was autocrossing it through concrete barriers. It was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're, uh, we're waffling now, but um, yep. let's, let's, uh, let's steer things into car builders. So, you know, you guys, uh, how old's Car Builders as a as a brand? I started it in two thousand and ten. Yeah. So um, it's sort of come about from, you know, building vehicles at home and uh, working a full time job, and then at the start of the internet. I've always, you know, taken to that whole the dot com thing. Even in uh, the early two thousands, I had a website. Me and a mate had a website where. When we were doing the mini trucks, we basically put all our notches and suspension stuff and airbags and everything online, and that was the start of it. But back then, you didn't even have like a – it was painful to check out. There wasn't a checkout as such. People would have to ring up, so it was really just an advertising page. So, you know, back then, we there was frustration knowing that technology was there, but there wasn't everything to support it. And then continued building cars at home, struggling, working full-time, and then you go, I can't, I can't get – it's, I haven't got time to get, you know, to the parts store or to the steel shop to get this or to get whatever you need to keep you going. That it was like this stuff needs to be all online, you know. It would just – if I could walk in out of the shed and order what I need and go to work next day and just get it delivered, this would be so much easier. So having that sort of always in the back of my mind, 
I then had stumbled across a, um, a material which everyone knows as Dynamat as a sound dampener and it started with that and we ended up, I've ended up going into a whole line of the thermal acoustic range. Um, I sort of, I guess I had an aware, awareness of it back in my, I did, would have been when I was in high school, I did work experience at the Motor Trimmers. Motor Trimmers was up the road from Dad's yard. It was his mate. So I'm like, I'll go do some work experience there. Had an interest in it. It was hands-on. Um, anyway, when I was going to university, I ended up working there part-time. So I had an idea of what was in cars and what was under cars from pulling them apart and understanding that sort of trade to a degree. And then combined with, you know, cutting and shutting and learning a whole bunch of other things, I, I found that one product and it's just sort of blown up into a whole line of products that is everything that goes under your carpet, under your floor pan to control sound and heat, even into your texture coat paints because they're something that customers contact us to go, I'm at this stage, I need something here. Rather than trying to explain to them, try and go down there and get this, this, we've just bought a lot of products in. Um, so we're the brand owner of everything car builders and solutions that are, that are sound and heat. I sort of chase, try and chase raw materials that you can universally use throughout all cars so not specific you know die cut this for that model um, but what the manufacturers have used that's proven and tested so like say our take our heat shield product for example we've got a peel and stick heat shield that's designed to be road facing it's actually what Chrysler and Ford use in production so if you stick your head under one of those F-150 V8 Raptors you see in our country you'll see the same product stuck under that's been used in mass production um, right through to like our embossed heat shields that are a folding form, but just a blank sheet. So you can make up your own. Um, guys will go, oh, I can go down the wreckers and get it. Yeah, but at, at the wreckers, it, it's, they've thickened it up. It's off tool pressed. It's rigid. You can't do much with it. So we created a thinner version, which is a shape and form multi-layer one. So we've got a whole range there for solutions for guys that are, you know, from firewall blankets to carpet underlays to waterproof carpet underlays to drop in sound barriers, all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 good to get it all in one one spot. And I uh, I sat and watched a few of the videos off your website, which your website's great, by the way. It's it's really well put together. And you know, I I got Dynamat in my Land Cruiser. I, I, I found um, especially in the summer, I'd be driving along, and just the heat coming off the transmission tunnel in the middle of summer, I could barely touch it with my legs. So even I mean, obviously we're talking about your competition now, but just using Dynamat. Uh, straight on the steel. I don't have anything else. You know, literally, I've got my feet feet on Dynamat in my truck because it's not finished. But uh, it just made a huge difference. It, it didn't. It didn't actually kill a heap of sound, but it really helped with the heat. Yeah. Okay. It's funny you say that. Mm. There's. Um... <laughs> I'll be careful what I say here. But <laughs> yeah. This the some of these companies out there can be very misleading with how they market it stuff too. And we try and we we come from you know a real world. I can give you tech data on material to show it tested in a laboratory to give an engineered result. But reality is, you know, you want to know exactly what you've done there. My car's hot. If I put this under there, is it going to get rid of the heat? Now, the what you coin dynamat is typically now dynamat. There's Dyna, Dynamic Control Products, which is an American company that you see Chip Foos is an ambassador or they've used him to endorse on the box. Older company that I think was established late 80s or early 90s. Probably original to take that raw butyl material and work it or sell it as a dampening mat. Now there's a string of them. Um, but everyone knows that as like Band-Aid or plaster. You know, you go get a Band-Aid and that's a brand name as such. People ring us up and so they want to buy Dynamat and we explain to them, you know, we've got our version and it's, it's the same as far as raw materials. If you break it down, it's, it's the same. It's a dampening mat, but pretty much what's your problem? Is it sand or heat? Where is it? So the dampening mat, which you refer to, reality is it'll knock around five degrees out. We've got foams that'll knock 30 degrees out and then we've got heat shields that'll knock hundreds of degrees out. So there's this breakdown of successful marketing over the years where people go, they want the silver stuff inside and they see silver and they think it's a heat insulator, which reality is unless that silver's facing the heat, it's not reflecting the heat, it's not doing anything. So I suppose we've got what we're trying to do and we're going to create more of that video content is real world sort of scenario showing people just how to use the material. Um, we want to get it to a stage where we've got 
heat references that you could set up the same heat test it in and understand how to set up that heat test because you can get a infrared you know laser pointer and you'll get mixed results because that won't actually read what's happening on the surface it might be reflecting and reading what's on the roof so there are you know some basic thermal probes which you need to measure a array of different scenarios to get the result um, we're working on some videos there to be publicly shown exactly to show okay this is material look what it does this will work under there and a lot of it comes down to packaging in cars where you go okay under my carpet reality is i've probably only got 15 mil to play with what can i fit in there what's with where am i best to spend my money so that's where we say you know typical show car guys will try and paint up underneath and then they'll want shiny pipes and they'll have no heat shielding so instantly i know they're going to have heat issues and a lot of guys will buy a car like that and go oh it's a pig to drive it's so hot can't get so hot the carpet's usually been stuck direct to sheet metal, so it's, the heat's just conducting straight through. Just putting a layer of foam under there and a heat shield underneath, you know, solves all their problems. It makes it like a production car that you'd buy out of the showroom and drive and you would never ever question heat. So it's just those little things which, at the end of the day, someone spends, you know, three to 400 bucks, which may only be a few tanks of gas, petrol in a car. It'll actually be comfortable to drive. They won't have memories of this hot beast that you can't drive in thongs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're looking at my truck there, the the Chev. Um, yeah. It's gonna it's gonna have a twelve valve Cummins diesel in it, so it's gonna be loud. Um, yeah. And and you know where I live here, forty degrees on a summer day is a pretty normal thing. So it's gonna have aircon, but you know something like that, you you would do like a multi stage um, covering to keep the heat and the the noise out of the cab what what would be the go yeah definitely that? so what i do like looking at the truck now there's no firewall and floor in it <clears throat> as you build it up what i'd consider doing particularly so mechanically you're going to build it first right where you got your engine in there you got your firewall your exhaust um what i would consider is how can you how where do you need to put a heat shield typically say if you've got an eight and it's running twin system and it's got four into ones where that header meets you know, all those those primaries collide into that single pipe, that's going to be the hottest point really of the exhaust that you're going to feel in the seating position in the car. So I'd look to shield that area of the exhaust. Now I'd try and do it, air gap's your key here. So usually with an exhaust system, I'd build a shield that's bolted to the pipe itself. So you could have it so you bolt the shield to the pipe and then you bolt the pipe up and bolt it in. Or like a manufacturer will do it, they'll put some studs on the floor and they might have a boss where it sits off finger gap and they'll have a shield bolt on. It'll screw on with some nuts and then the exhaust system will go up to it and it, there'll be typically finger gap between the pipe and finger gap through the floor. Think of it as like rising smoke. If you picture that heat visually as smoke, it's going up, it's hitting that shield. If that shield was curved like 180 degrees over the pipe, the radiant heat from you know 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock effectively you're capturing it all. So you can reduce all that heat. If you... Take, now take that heat shield away, away as such and you've got that smoke all that hitting straight to the floor it's becoming conductive into the floor pan itself and then it's spreading throughout the car if you can imagine not having anything inside of it you, it's like you cooking an egg on a fry pan you'll physically be able to cook that egg but what you can also do is so heat shields underneath is a great thing some of these duramaxes and that sort of thing these bigger motors that are tight that guys are playing around with when they don't have room to run that air gap, we've got a peel and stick product that they can stick up under the transmission tunnel, that sort of thing. It's not always practical if you've gone and um, bitumen texture coated underneath the floor, nothing will stick to that because it's sort of, it's inhibited with sort of wax. It doesn't take to an adhesive. So if you can't do that, then there's solutions for the inside. One of the things particularly now looking at your truck, it's old, none of the interior is there. What do you do? You want to put a firewall blanket in it for sure. So that's a, a sound and heat insulator to go on the inside. So standard on all cars. If you pull the HVAC system out, you'll see a die-cut blanket in there and it'll feel like it's got a heavy vinyl. That vinyl is typically a sound blocking vinyl and then it'll have a foam or a, a jute, some sort of insulator on the inside that kisses up to the firewall. You know, you can imagine driving along with that sound and heat gets thrown at the firewall, becomes noise and becomes heat inside of it. Just by putting that blanket across there, you're going to reduce you know all that noise coming through so it's pretty much from looking at your truck and maybe it's something that w when you're up to that stage it's we can create a video on it and just go from the pl pretty much the plenum down all the way skin it up to the rear wall 
with a mix of materials to stop all that sound and heat. That's going to make the truck feel solid, quiet. If you put AC in it, your AC is not going to be, it's going to be able to keep up with capacity where it's not running at, you know, trying to run at 100% all the time. Um, there's foams and stuff we can put in the roof too. So if you go to the extreme of a black car versus a white car, a black car is always going to be hotter to the point where, you know, on a hot summer's day, you'll feel a radiant heat coming through the roof. So there's foams that we can use and stick directly to the roof skin to reduce that radiant heat coming through and actually, you know, keep the car cooler. So that's where I say, you know, it's might to the extent of if you had a dual cab like or, or a wagon, like we've got, a, we've got packs on our line that say if you've got a full drive wagon, one of the biggest sort of cars out there, I think they still only run at around 700 bucks for all the materials to do as much as you can to the inside of the car. Yeah, that's, that's not bad. And I guess, you know, that's the time to think about it is when I'm at almost at my stage so that, you know, if, if a heat shield, like you're saying, is your first line of defence and it's going to make maybe the biggest difference and it's a quite a simple thing, then, then you make your exhaust fit so that you can do that and just having the knowledge to think ahead to do those things uh, is a big thing, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's just progression and consumer expectation these days. I mean, if we were to go get a HQ Kingswood and drive it out of the production room now, you'd critique the hell out of it because you're used to something so much nicer to drive. Um, I mean, it's like every car's got electric window standard these days. So the consumer expectation is a lot higher. So that's where these newer things like basic thing like a heat shield is designed into your exhaust build when you're at that raw metal stage. As far as the dampening mat and all that stuff goes, worry about that after paint when your car's built. All you need to consider is though packaging is like in your truck, I'm looking at there going, there's no firewall. So you're going to set that up in a position and then everything's going to work backwards off that. So packaging is going to be a concern for you that you're going to have to go, okay, how's the heater back system going to work in this? How's it going to package? You're going to want to have that firewall blanket in there um, to know, okay, I'm not too far forward in car that it's all going to fit. So there's sort of a mix of materials you need at different stages, but I think the firewall one and the heat shield one are two primary ones, which at that raw stage, be aware of and know you need to put something in there. And you, I hear about guys putting putting the matting inside the door skins and stuff like that. Does that that make a significant difference in, in road noise? Yeah, uh, there's probably a perceptual difference there. And you'll see it on like, take a low-end $15,000 cheap car like Yaris, for example, where they've leaned everything out of it. Go shut the doors on a Yaris and they'll feel paper thin. Yet go to a Camry and they would have put a, a dampening sheet. Maybe they've only put something, you know, oh, smaller than an A4 bit of paper just in the hot spot of the door. So the open most part of that skin, you shut that door and you go, oh, it's much better quality. It's the same door. Effectively, the material hasn't got any thicker. It's the same manufacturing principles. They just haven't put anything in there. So your perceived, you know, value or perceived quality is much higher. Look, on and each car is different. 70 Series Land Cruiser, for example, the styling does no justice to those vehicles as far as the surface design goes. So by that, I mean there's not much crown in the door that the door doesn't know whether it wants to be in or out. You shut the door and, you know, it sounds like Ralph Harris. You drive it down a corrugated dirt road and that door starts singing. So being able to dampen that skin is going to reduce that panel vibration. Tire noise is a hard one because it's not... Just by dampening the car, you're not going to get rid of that tyre noise as such. Um, tyre noise is going to come up through structure borne frequency. That's going to be bushes. That's going to be, is it a full chassis car? All those sort of things. Um, tyres, aggressive tyres are going to add to that. Um, wheelhouse liners or lack of wheelhouse liners. So to the extent where you see like European cars, they've all got like fleece line or flock line wheelhouse liners, all adds to reducing sound. Electric cars, I think tyre noise is going to be a big thing because there's not much mechanical noise. So first thing you critique is that tyre noise where people are doing things where they're trying to line the inside of tyres with foam to try and reduce tyre noise often. But reality is, picture that, you know, it's that surface noise. You're driving over that noise as it's coming underneath the car. Is there dampening on the floor of the car? What's under the car? You can try and limit it to a degree, but you're not necessarily just going to make that car quiet. Um, dampening is though dampening structure borne frequency through panel and it's usually thin panel is where you're going to reduce that so door skins roof skins rear firewalls on pickups particularly because you've got all that under noise from the tray so you've got your drive line your wheels exhaust everything that coming up 
insulating the rear wall on, you know, like a single cab truck like yours there is, is one of the primary things that I definitely focus on. Yeah, and is that is that a case of just putting a square in the middle to stop a vibration or are we, we coating the whole thing if we can? Yeah, so the easiest way to do it is picture it as a heat map really. So anywhere where the steel's been folded or is spot welded to like a top hat section, you can assume it's not going to make a very good instrument. But between those areas where the material stretch across, like say a door skin, if a door skin's got an intrusion bar, it's going to be above and below that intrusion bar is going to be like a hot spot. So picture it like a trampoline where it looks like it can flex the most. That's the first area that you want to put a patch on. So people will throw around percentages to say, oh, you only need to cover it 20% or, you know, this percent. Reality is it, it's such a hard one to measure on. A, you can't put a number on it, but common sense or what I like to coin as guessometric engineering, you can pretty much guess where you need to put it by tapping on the the panel if it's a door skin tap on it if you tap exactly where that intrusion bar is it's going to sound solid but if you tap above or below it you go okay well it's a bit tinny there put a piece on tap around again if you're conscious of weight because we are adding mass to the panel if you're conscious on trying to keep a vehicle light well you can go fairly lean on it and just put it in areas you know where they want what tends to happen though is you know everyone wants to outdo their mates and you go oh no john skinned his whole floor i'm going to do better than him i'm going to skin my doors and this and that and Reality is, you know, it's just do the single skin sheet metals areas. Anywhere there's a top hat section and it's reinforced, you're not going to get sound through there that dampening is going to control. So you can go fairly lean on it. Um, if I was to use a rule of thumb, I'd almost sort of say 60%, but it's it's one of those things where even I'll do it, I'll get in a, in a car and I'll end up skinning the whole floor because you want to do a neat job and you go, I don't care if I spend an extra you know, 50 bucks, I want my car to be as best as it can be done. So you can get carried away with it in a sense, but the makeup's going to be dampening's not, you're not going to solve everything with dampening. You're going to need an underlay. There's a couple of different versions of underlay. Um, and then each, when I say underlays, there's underlays that are foam, there's underlays that are a mix of recycled textiles. And then there's foams that can suit your roof, your doors, your rear firewall, and that purely comes down to packaging. So ideally, uh, for a guy who's listening to the podcast at the moment, uh, he's at he's at an early build stage like I am. You know, maybe it's a good idea to have a chat to to yourself and just say, "Look, this is this is what I'm planning on doing." Uh, you know, it might be worth, especially say before you put your windows in your doors, it might be worth doing your skinning before then rather than trying to get in underneath later. Is there is there stages where it would be better for someone to to chat to you or do they come and see you at the end and go, here's the finished truck, let's make it quiet? Yeah, before trim is the best way to go um, because you're not, <clears throat> I mean, when your trim goes down, really, it's finished, you want to consume it and use it, so you don't want to be having to pull up that sort of work. And each car's different and each project's different and that can be, you know, on how much somebody can do by themselves or at what stage they've got their different trades coming in. It's like trying to build a house, I suppose, and it's some, there's an ideal way to do it and it never goes to plan, it seems. <laughs> but, um, yeah, by all means, I mean, we've got a lot of information on the website too, which if you go under, the, we've actually got a pickups pack there, which takes the amount of material you'll need to generically fit in that size vehicle. And at the end of the day, I mean, take a, a single cab pickup, whether it's a Hilux or whether it's a Chev, they f still fit two to three people in them. The width might only be, you know, a hundred mil difference between the rockers. Um, they still fit two humans in them. You, the amount of material is going to be very similar. So you don't need to get bogged down on going, oh, but mine's a bigger one than yours. The reality is, mate, it's not that big, she'll tell you. And it's probably only, <laughs> you know, a hundred mil in it <laughs> to go, we're going to send you enough material to be able to, to do it. Um, but on the pickups page on our website it takes you through what material goes where uh, we do have to do a pickup video we've got a few videos we try and cover we're trying to cover every demographic of car in a sense of you know we've got a dual cab full drive um, I've actually I do my C10 really to go to resonate with you know this market to go hey you've got a pickup it's a single cab this is you know what's in there and this is what you can put in there you've got one there if you can only hurry oh, up with it and get it <laughs> uh, but you know there, we do have a range of different vehicles 
you know, on YouTube that go, some of them painfully go for like 40 odd minutes. You got to sit and listen to me, um, go through it. But we try and show you where and why and how to use those materials. If you're still not sure, you can ring up. We've got sales team that are all experts that have all got cars that they've all pulled apart. So we do only hire people that um, are passionate about cars. <laughs> so if you get someone on the phone, they're going to be able to talk the talk for you. Yeah, that's cool. And and you do, you sell like the Sway on Rhino liner. You've got a whole bunch of those sort of products available on the website. Yeah, the texture coats. And we've got water-based texture coats and then there's solvent-based ones. So like your two-pack style ones. Um, I still use both of them in a the sense of I don't favour one because there's times when you, you use the strength of one over the other. Those sort of coatings too are going, you know, we're started as like texture bed liners as DIY solutions. Now, just to confirm, none of those compete with these commercial coatings like, um, uh, what are they called, Linex as such. Now, those sort of coatings, there's a bunch of Speedliner, Linex, they're typically got proprietary equipment that, you know, comes out of a commercial spray equipment at like a high temperature, 85 degrees, and it's a hot polymer melt. That stuff is military indestructible. You can go out and pay to get that done, but it's not, it's out of reach for a DIY. So these DIY solutions that are coming as texture coats are products like your, your Raptor or your Bully, which is the water-based one. Um, and they're a DIY thing that you can do at home with basic spray equipment uh, to the point where they're not just ute liners anymore. Guys will typically use them as undercarriage or to the extreme of you know full exterior coats, your full drive market favor that and particularly you know you've got an old gq or something that you've invested in the running gear with and the body's not something that you want to keep you know top coat gloss on it you go and texture coat it a young bloke can get stuck into it do it in his backyard and go out and abuse it then recode it quite easy so we've done a lot with those coatings we've got a few videos on there to that extent i still do have a mini truck actually believe it or not um uh, what is it? It's, I think it's another 90 model Rodeo called the Bandit, which we texture coated the whole exterior to do a um, comparison test on the Raptor versus the Bully, which was a bit of a fun project. So, um, yeah, good little story that one, but that, that is on YouTube actually. So you guys have a channel, Car Builders has got a YouTube channel and all your stuff's up there as well? Yeah, correct. Yeah, cool, cool. All right, mate, well, that, look, that's a lot of info and, I, and I'm sure we've only really scratched the surface and, and it obviously often is um, vehicle uh, dependent, you know, like each, each situation is a little bit different. Um, the reason I don't have a firewall is because I'm going to have a cylinder inside where the old one used to be. So, <laughs> so it's a big engine going in there. So, you know, if people want to check out your stuff, you know, it's, is it carbuilders.com.au? Correct, yep. You can find us online, um, .com.au. So that's we're Australian-based. We're out of uh, Melbourne. We do ship uh, global, so we do get a lot of product inquiries from all over the world. Um, we're working on distribution to get it to everyone. At the moment, um, you know, we've got distributors in the, in the UAE, in Omar, working on one in New Zealand at the moment, um, but Australia we've got covered. So fortunately, if you're listening to us right now in uh, Australia, we can ship to you um, Australia-wide. It's not a problem. Um, call us up. We can help you through or give you advice on on what you need or where you should go and, you know, make it so you only have to do the project once. Yeah, that's the ideal situation. And, and you're on Instagram and, and Facebook as well. So Facebook and on and on TikTok. Oh, God, really? <laughs> and on TikTok. So if you're on your kid's account, you get on TikTok. No, we've got a huge following on uh, TikTok, like ridiculous. I think the last time I looked, it was 560,000 um, subscribers. I don't think so I, I, there. I don't even comprehend what TikTok is apart from silly videos. That's all I've got. Yeah, it's an interesting one to watch. And I think that platform, you know, is one to watch. Uh, Instagram is probably a good, a great source of information particularly because it's pretty much just image base. So you can just scroll around and, you know, get what you need for, you know, your interests. Um, so we try and keep that social content as much as we can. Uh, customers, a, a lot of it is to our customers throwing us pictures or us working with installers and just trying to share the content because people want to see the, you know, the ins and outs of, of stuff, where it is, how it's installed. So, um if you do have pictures, by all means, send them through, work with us, and we'll um, get out there and champion whoever it is that's, you know, responsible for the work. 
All right, Brandon. Well, we might leave you with that, but um, thanks for your time and, and very informative and good to see that you got a C10 in the shed and, and look forward to seeing what you do with that one for sure. And hopefully uh, I can get my firewall in soon and, and we can have a chat and, and try and uh, make my truck a bit more tolerable for my wife to come for a drive. Yeah, sure. I mean, if you don't want her to come, we don't have to do anything, but um, you probably prefer <laughs> the company if you want to have a couple of drinks. <laughs> yeah. Someone's going to drive home, right? Someone's going to drive home. That's it. If you trust her. <laughs> you know, when you're ready, we w I'm sure everyone wants to see pictures of that too. So uh, maybe we force you to get a blog up there, a video blog of it, and um, we'll get behind you with some materials and you can show everyone how it's done. Yeah, sounds good, mate. All right. Appreciate your time. And um, yeah, and if you're listening, uh, jump up on Car Builders' website and have a bit of a look at their stuff because uh, great products and Australian-owned business. Thanks, Brennan. All right, mate. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. All information shared in our episodes is general, and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook, iTunes, or the good old word of mouth. I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day, even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket. You'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.